Got questions? The Bible has answers. We'll help you find them. Welcome to the God Questions Podcast with Shay Hoodman, President of God Questions Ministries. Welcome to the God Questions Podcast. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a, a difficult issue, but a very important one in light of what's going on in our culture today. And with me, I have Dr. Sandra Glahn, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and a co-editor of the book, Sanctified Sexuality. And we'll have a link to where you can purchase this book online in the comments field on YouTube and on our podcast page. So Dr. Glahn, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So a question I want to talk about today is how do we um, speak truth and love based on Ephesians 4.15 to those who are struggling with the various forms of gender dysphoria or um, homosexuality, lesbianism, etc. when no matter how lovingly we attempt to tell them what the Bible says about that behavior or that orientation, um, it's not received in love. So Dr. Glahn, what, um, what pointers, what advice, what guidance and counsel can you give us to help us know how to um, minister to people who are struggling with these issues? I love that you're asking that question. I think it's a really important question for the church to be asking ourselves. What does it look like to be Christ-like in these conversations? What does it look like to to tell the truth in love? And I think the, the first place to start is by looking at what is the truth in the first place. So obviously we, we start in scripture, but I think there are some things we've sometimes missed in the conversation. For example, we have at times been quick in the church to say God made them male and female, which he did in Genesis. But that was a pre-fall state. And something very traumatic happened in Genesis, you know, recorded in Genesis 3. So God made people to be fruitful and multiply, but he, but I went through infertility and pregnancy loss, right? So there are ramifications from the fall that are not caused by me or, or people that are experiencing this. So that can come into play, particularly when we are thinking about gender dysphoria, because it's often confused with intersex. So the, first of all, we have to just even begin with, what are we talking about? What is the truth? So in a, in a course I teach at the seminary or co-teach, um, we have students watch a film that's a documentary on people who are born with ambiguous genitalia. And many of my students didn't know that was such a thing. They're at a master's level, but they did not realize that, that a person could be born today with XXY chromosomes, which means that's not a clear male or clear female either or binary. And but the minute we often the minute we'll say that there are people, you know, who aren't born in a binary, Christians will be very concerned and start using words like liberalism, you know, worried about us when what we're talking about is is what the wisdom authors tell us to do, which is look at the natural world and grow wise. So the first thing we have to ask, as I said, is you know, what do the scriptures say? But also, what does general revelation, for lack of a better word, what, is, what does the world around us tell us? So one of the things that happened back uh, when the AIDS crisis was really beginning to take off, and I'm old enough to, to have gone to, you know, to work every day with people who self-identified as gay, who, who were losing friends left and right. I lost some friends to the AIDS crisis. And at the time, uh, there was a lot of conversation about how this is caused by sin. 
you know, we just didn't know that much about the cause, actually. And so the U.S. church sort of stigmatized it. And so what we didn't see was a lot of Christians running in to, to minister to AIDS patients. But the church in Africa handled it much differently than the U.S. church. They looked at that and said, regardless of the cause, Jesus has mercy and we're going to care. And they brought governments together. They trained in safe sex. Um, and they acknowledged that you shouldn't be having immoral relationships, but they also acknowledged that there was this horrible pandemic that was killing people. And so I hope that we've gained some wisdom from that to say, first of all, there are some of these conditions where we there are some things we still don't know. For example, uh, how much of uh, gender dysphoria which is when the birth you're, which you're assigned with at birth, what's on your birth certificate, your, your male or female uh, is typically determined and written on your birth certificate, but you feel psychologically like you're a mismatch with that. So is there something happening in our vaccines that's attaching to our DNA as little children are developing? We don't know that yet. Is there something, a hormonal contribution? We don't know that yet. Is it a choice? Well, there is some evidence that there's socialization involved, but not necessarily always, which means when we talk about this, we can go to Jesus interacting with a man born blind. And when people say, who sinned, <laughs> this man or his parents, we say, you know, this could be a situation where nobody sinned. Intersex would, would be a really direct example. And with, with gender dysphoria, there are many things we just don't know that the experts really don't know yet. So what we do know, though, is that Jesus talked about three kinds of eunuchs. And, you know, some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs, and some are eunuchs for the kingdom. And I take that to mean some are born with physical configurations that make it impossible to reproduce. Some people are castrated, maybe against their will. Daniel could have been such a person. And then you have, and certainly the Ethiopian eunuch could have been, he could have been in the first or second category. And then the third category would be someone who chooses not to reproduce for the sake of the kingdom. Somebody probably who's choosing celibacy. But, but Jesus in that very first category, referring to somebody who's born eunuch, there, there's really a long history of that word meaning more than simply castration. And he seems to be acknowledging that there are physical conditions, but he also, in that same context, assumes these people are not going to marry. And so that's a question that we wrestle with of what is the purpose of marriage? And, you know, who, what is God's design for marriage? And all of that may come into play. That was a long answer to a short question, but, but we have to first go to the scriptures and say, what does it say? When it comes to same-sex attraction, the scriptures seem to differentiate between behavior of living that out and our attractions. It, it, would, it would appear that, that to be attracted to somebody that I'm not supposed to be pursuing a relationship with is not a sin. It's what I do with that attraction. It's not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to act on the temptation. And often in the church, we've said things like, uh, it's a sin to be gay. And we need to clarify, <laughs> are, are we talking about same-sex attraction? Or are we talking about you know same-sex sex? And there seems to be a big difference. 
Well, for sure. One of the realizations I've come to on the journey, I mean, coming from a church background where it was, it's a choice. It's all a choice. It's 100% a choice. If you're attracted to the same sex, you're choosing to be that way. And that's how I was taught and brought up. I know a lot of other people were, but then ministering to people, asking these type of questions, and whether online and in person, eventually, I think God got it through my thick skull that, you know, if people can be born intersex, be born with confused or mismatched yeah. um, genitalia, then how can we say someone could not also be born with something miswired in their brain that causes them to be attracted to the same sex instead of the opposite sex? I mean, exactly. so many things can play into something like that, that saying it a, is it a choice, don't have enough to decide, like you said, what is truly the cause, whether it's the combination of multiple factors. So lumping everyone in the same category, it's, it's not Christ-like. It's, it's not Christ-like, <laughs> it's not biblical, and it's yeah. it's cruel. Do some people choose it? I, I, I believe so. I've met people who, due to experiences they've gone through, they hate men or hate women and decided, I just want to be with people of the same gender. Well, right. that that's that's more of the choice factor. But if people are born intersex, how can we say they can also could not also be born with some sort of confusion as to exactly why yeah. am I biologically male and not attracted to females? So, right. like you said, saying it is a choice is not the best starting point at all. And and a really great starting point is humility. <laughs> you know, approaching it with I don't know, but it it this leads then to a conversation which is relates to another question you had asked me, which is what about identity? Why does it, why do people seem so wrapped up in their identity? Part of it is trying to convince people, I'm really not choosing this. <laughs> and it can be really, really frustrating to be barred from a Bible study, you know, treated like you are choosing it and it's a sin. And therefore, you know, the, the beginning has to be, who am I? And what, uh, what am I doing? And and if you're bumping up against someone who thinks that you're choosing this and it's completely in your control, then you can hear somebody like that saying, I'm attracted. I can't help my attraction. Like it becomes a, a big point of conversation simply because people are banging their heads against the wall looking for some empathy in this. And I think another another factor with identity is we have to even there ask ourselves, what are we talking about when we're talking about identity? I am a professor, as you said, I'm a woman, I'm a wife, I'm a writer. All of those are identities that, so in that sense, they're things, they're descriptors. They're th ways that I describe myself. Mm -hmm. Being a woman isn't going to change, but being a professor will, <laughs> you know, at some point. I will always be a mother. I may not always be alive for my daughter and vice versa, but that's that's not changing. But then I have lots of other roles that totally change all the time. And, you know, I was a student recently and, and now I'm not a student anymore. And so sometimes when people are, are self-identifying as gay Christians, they are simply trying to identify without an entire paragraph or half a page explanation of experiencing same-sex attraction and all the things that goes with that. And so it isn't always somebody making it more important than their Christianity. Their Christianity is central and that's a modifier. So again, we have to ask some questions before we give some answers. That's the struggle. And I mean, a good friend have been talking about this a lot recently. It's just 
having experienced utter failure multiple times of trying to, mm-hmm. like I said at the beginning, speak the truth in love. And I'm really, I really do love you, but I cannot, biblically speaking, deny the fact that every time the Bible speaks of homosexual behavior, it clearly identifies it as sinful, as immoral, as unnatural. So I can't, as a Bible-believing Christian, escape that fact, but that does not change how I feel about you as a person, does not change the fact that I believe you are equally created in the image and likeness of God as I am. But I cannot, again, as a biblically committed Christian, excuse the behavior or say that uh, you feel that way and you've always felt that way, therefore it's okay to engage in that behavior. I, I can't go there, and yet that seems to be where many of them want us to go. So I think you raise an important question, and that is, what what is the context where the conversation is happening? When I worked with people who were not only gay, but uh, you know, going to gay bars and having very lascivious relationships, they knew I was a Christian. They invited me to eat lunch with them. They weren't claiming to be Christians at all. And so I saw that as a compliment, it, as Jesus, Jesus hung out with all kinds of people and, and even was scandalizing, you know, how can you hang out with somebody who's ripping us off as a tax collector? And he's mm-hmm. like, of such, you know, that these are the people God loves. So with those people, I don't get the sense that Jesus walked into the tax collector dinner and said, you know, you're ripping people off. He built a relationship with them. But, but you get to a point then when you've built a relationship where you can ask, can we have a conversation about this? permission. And then it begins with questions and, and not like nosy questions, but like, what are you comfortable telling me? What are you comfortable talking about? Do you, what do you run into from Christians on this? How has your family dealt with this? So that you have some clue, the heartache that they're experiencing or the hard heartedness they might be like, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there are verses about don't throw your pearls before swine. Like, don't try to have a conversation on any subject with somebody who doesn't want to have that conversation, right? Um, and so, so some of that is is wisdom. Uh, some of that is gauging what is my relationship with this person. And so, you know, our students who are where it is our job to train them, what Romans one says. And so we're very direct with what Romans one says and and what it means. But a student coming and asking to be taught is very different from someone in the cafeteria inviting you in to have a meal with them. And so I think this is where we really need to constantly walk in the spirit, which is constantly be asking, Lord, with this person, what does love look like? With that person, what does love look like? Are they inviting me to have a conversation? Because if they're not, it's really not my place to, in the same way that with former colleagues, I would never have, uh, if I knew they were committing adultery, I would never have brought it up unless I were invited to bring it up. Uh, but that's different from someone in the church. Like I'm talking about in the in the marketplace, in the office. You know, It's none of my business what I've heard on the elevator <laughs> to have an opinion and go confront them about that. But it is my business if it's a member of my youth group. Like it really depends on what is their relationship? How how have I shown love in the beginning? And I think this is where we have sometimes misunderstood what's happening with the woman at the well, because we think that Jesus starts with her sin when he says, you've had five husbands and the one you have now isn't your own. 
when um, it's much more likely that she had been widowed multiple times and now had to be a concubine in order to eat. And if that's the case, he wasn't starting with her sin. He was starting with her heartache and saying, God sees you, your multiple losses. She probably wasn't a 25-year-old beauty. She was probably a woman over 50 missing teeth who, in order to eat, had to share a husband. Uh, because that was pretty much what happened to a widow in Palestine, right? And that's that's how the church understood that story up until the Reformation. And so if that's true, Jesus begins with compassion. He definitely deals with sin. But his starting place is very much more often, I see you, the God who sees, I see you. That, that's powerful. I love your description of waiting for an invitation. So um, if we've built a relationship with someone who's struggling, whether it's gender dysphoria or sexual orientation, the first thing we do when we discover that about them doesn't need to be, you know what the Bible says about that. If they ask us, well, then, hey, what what do you believe the Bible says about this? Well, then that's the invitation. But generally speaking, with any other sinful behavior, even if we discover it or notice in someone, it's not our place to bring that up right away. And it's not very likely, it's, unless the Holy Spirit is working on the person, it's not going to be received very well until we've earned that level of trust and respect. And they can tell, okay, this person genuinely cares about me as a person, makes them more likely to listen to what we have to say. So it's that invitation concept, whether it's a legitimate invitation of them saying, what do you think about this? Or it's just, you built a relationship so you can have the conversation and have it not come across in a non-threatening way. But so many people who struggle with these issues, their experience with Christians have been the protesters right. on parades or the right. the churches who say horrible things where they're barely kind of sort of speaking the truth, but absolutely free of love. And that's been their primary experience. So one of us even seeking to speak the truth in love, um, often love has to come first until they're ready to receive the truth. Yes, and even an early question can be, what has been your experience with the church on this? Mm-hmm. And chances are they've even Googled, you know, what's right and wrong on this. What, what have you found out? What kind of questions have you asked? What have people said to you? What labels have you felt were unfairly attached? Like really hearing them because the chance chances are we may not we may have to say less than we think once we have an opportunity because it very well is not the first time they've heard this in fact uh, because so often the church has opened the door with you know guns blazing then if we're talking to somebody who's had that experience and so many have we need to go and and counteract that messaging by being the one who cares by listening and by saying Jesus really loves you Jesus loves you, and Jesus loves the world. And then us having his example to follow, no one ever doubted um, Jesus' love for them when he was here on earth. I mean, maybe the Pharisees, but they they, they deserved it. Um, But But they also knew where he stood, right? Like they knew where he stood. He wasn't compromising by going to the house of sinful people. Mm-hmm. He he wasn't compromised. Nobody viewed him as being, well, the Pharisees did view him as being unrighteous. But the people themselves never questioned Jesus's integrity by the fact that he showed up and shared meals with them. They, he found a way to hold the line on truth while 
while not letting that be a thing that injured people before they understood that he cared about that he really cared he wasn't just building a relationship with them to have the conversation even Mm -hmm. he just flat cared it's very true and it's if we could only get to the point where i mean ultimately truth is often going to offend those who are not ready to receive it but if we could even get to a point where seeking to encourage and minister someone who's struggling with any of these sexual or gender dysphoric type of issues to be able to say, I don't agree with you. And what you said is even hurtful, but I still, I know you, you care about me and love, love me. So thank you for sharing that to even get to that point, I think would be a a tremendous win because if someone can hear you say something that offends them and they disagree with, and yet still detect love in you, that's powerful. I had a lesbian friend who said to me, I hate what you believe and we can't be friends. And then she came back a year later and asked me to lunch. And she said, I want to ask your forgiveness. I did to you the very thing that I've hated people doing to me, which Mm -hmm. is where we have a difference of belief. They cut me off. And she said, I, I don't, I don't like what you believe, but I Mm -hmm. recognize that you believe it because you're committed to scripture. And I respect that. And I thought that took a tremendous amount of humility for her to acknowledge that, but not just like write me a note, right? She said it to my face to restore that relationship. And I would certainly hope that we could do the same, <laughs> that we could say, I I disagree with how you're processing this, but I am not going to let that be a thing that cuts off our friendship, And I'm not going to let that be a thing that makes me uh, just write you off in every area of of life. That's powerful. So thank you, Dr. Glahn, for your time today and for for the reminder about sometimes speaking the truth in love means waiting for the right timing to speak the truth aspect of that, to make sure they understand and know that we love them before we speak the truth. That's a difficult balance to achieve, but... um, vitally important. So thank you for your encouragement today. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you. So this is the Got Questions podcast. Hope our conversation has been encouraging you today and hope it gives you a little more readiness to know how to seek to minister to people who are struggling with all the various um, sexual orientation and gender identity issues that are out there. So Got Questions, Bible has answers. We'll help you find them. Your questions, biblical answers. The Got Questions podcast. Check us out at podcast.gotquestions.org.